0: All right, my heart is already filled with the worship and being able to rejoice in what God is doing and sending missionaries to the Philippines and <clears throat> blessing uh, my brother James. I'm not going to talk about him, I'll break down. So, thankful though and uh, how God has led you as a church <clears throat> in those ways. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 this morning. You start a new chapter in Romans. And looking forward to getting into this with you. As you turn there, I'll just ask you a question uh, to get our minds thinking about how we should respond to this passage and its relevance and value for us today. So, the question I want to start us with this morning is uh, Have you ever felt so overwhelmed with God's grace that you broke forth into song? Or in praise to God? Have you ever been so overwhelmed with God's grace to you that you broke forth in spontaneous song or praise to God? Now, I do know that I am preaching in a Baptist church. I've not forgotten about that. And I know that we have our restrictions when it comes to worship. Maybe a little bit less so than our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. By the way, I guess last week, um, I was told that some of you in the Chapel Overflow were blessed in a way you've never been blessed before, as my mic was on during the first song, <laughs> in the first verse of the song, so I want to publicly apologize <laughs> to you of the Chapel Overflow, and it was my debut, I didn't know it, <laughs> I would have practiced a little bit more so it's an example of the joyful noise that we sometimes uh, we, we talk about. Perhaps we're uncomfortable with the question about public, so let's move it to the private. Uh, let's think about your private devotions. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by something that God has done for you that you shouted forth or sang forth praise to God? This morning, we're going to consider a passage where an Old Testament author breaks into song, praising God for his blessings. The Old Testament author is cited by Paul in Romans chapter four. And the aim of my, the whole aim of my sermon this morning is unapologetically to motivate or challenge you to praise God. ...for the blessings of being justified apart from your own works. Uh, As a form of review in Romans... uh, ...Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through the end of chapter 11... ...is what I've called the theological issue that Paul has on his mind in Romans. The theological issue. He will later come to a pastoral issue where he wants them to be unified... And he has a missional purpose. He wants them to help him reach Spain. But before he does that, in the first 11 chapters after the introduction, he spends a lot of time uh, helping them understand or know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the theological issue that lays at the heart of Romans. He wants the Roman believers to know the gospel. More specifically, I think he wants them to understand its nature, Romans 1, 18 through the end of chapter 4. He wants them to know the power of the gospel, Romans 6 through 8, and he wants them to understand the history of the gospel, which involves both Jew and Gentile uh, in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Regarding the nature of the gospel, we said that the gospel is unique in that it reveals God's righteousness. And throughout chapters 1 through 4, we've noticed that that righteousness is against all forms of ungodliness, Romans 1.18 through 3.20. It is a righteousness as well that is found in Jesus Christ, Romans 3.21 through thirty one and then finally in chapter 4 he'll hit on an emphasis here that i think he's already established but he'll show it to us in a new way he'll show that it's a righteousness which is by faith by faith in jesus christ and so as we come to romans chapter 4 we'll consider we're, we'll look at paul uh, considering four possible means of justification He begins with three means that can't do it, that can't get justification done. They are works, uh, verses 1 through 8, circumcision, verses 9 through 12, law, verses 13 through 17. You thought we were done with law, but we're not. Law, 13 through 17. And then finally, he will consider the means of justification that is that works, and that is faith. Verses 18 through 25. In our preaching, we'll consider the next two weeks the false means of justification. Today we'll look at works, Romans 1, or 4, 1 through 8. Next week we'll look at circumcision and law. And then we'll finish up in two weeks, Lord willing, with the right answer uh, being justification by faith. And so, Paul begins here, or continues, uh, his, with his question and answer sort of style, but he changes things a bit. He's been using a type of literature called uh, discourse, which is heavy and weighty, but in chapter 4, he moves to a narrative. He considers a story. You know, you, we can learn a lot through written principles and maxims and written-out catechisms, but... We can also learn a lot through example and learning or seeing someone. And so that's what he's going to do in chapter four. He's going to consider the we're going to consider together the Abraham story. And he starts in verses one by considering Abraham and works. Uh, this section contains a question, some possible answers, and some final conclusions. His opening question is in verse 1, so let's look there, Romans 4, 1. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? That's Paul's opening question. Now, the question is posed to those who have Abraham as as their forefather. I don't want to get into the the depths of this. Uh, This could be All Christians who have faith like Abraham, as the text will later say, it might also be Jewish Christians. I think he probably has a Jewish imaginary reader in mind. Regardless, to this person, Paul asks what Abraham gained, and that's a key word in verse 1. The ESV translation that I'm using, uh, the word gained, is completely appropriate and conveys The sense of the Greek term pretty well. But there are other translations I think are clearer or better that I would prefer here. Um, For instance, the Christian Standard Bible and the King James translate the word gained, found. And I think that that is better. So does the New American Standard, I believe. The Net Bible and the NIV take the same word and translate it discovered for those of you who know a little Greek, the, the word is eurisko, and it normally is translated found. So Paul asked here about Abraham. And he asked what Abraham found or discovered, which I think is a little bit better than gained. So what did Abraham find or discover to be true in his own life experience about justification? Uh, The answer comes in verses 2 and 3. That's when Paul posts answers to the question. He considers a wrong answer to what Abraham found and then a right answer. The wrong answer is an idea that he'll consider briefly for the sake of argument only and then quickly refute it. Look at the wrong answer, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. Now in verse uh, chapter two here, uh, Paul, or verse two, Paul considers how some Jewish people reasoned about their forefather Abraham. And I think he considers this wrong answer briefly because he knows some of his Jewish contemporaries actually believe this. They think Abraham, their great forefather, was justified on the basis of his own righteousness or on the basis of his own works. Now, this is not just my theory. And there are a good number of pastors and writers who would deny that any Jewish people thought this or that many Jewish people thought this. But I'll give you a few examples. Okay. I don't have a PowerPoint, but you'll just have to listen to these examples of Jewish belief in Abraham being justified by his works. The first one comes from a book called The Book of Jubilees. It says Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. That book's not in your Bible. It's a Jewish resource, and they believe that Abraham was perfect all the days of his life. Then in another book, uh, part of the Mishnah, it says, We find that Abraham our father had performed the whole law before it was given, for it is written, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, in Genesis 26, verse 5. So this Jewish resource points out that they believe that Abraham actually obeyed the whole law of Moses before the law of Moses was ever even given, that he failed in no part. In another book called The Prayer of Manasseh, it says this, You therefore, our Lord, thou art the God of the just, have not appointed repentance to the just, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, who have not sinned against you, but you have appointed repentance to me, a sinner. Okay, This is, again, not a book found in the Bible, but it reflects a Jewish view during the first century that, that God has appointed repentance to sinners, not to people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who didn't sin. All right? To this, we question, like, Have you read Genesis? Uh, You don't have to read too far into Genesis to see those three men sinning. Yet Paul considers whether this is what Abraham actually found about righteousness. Was Abraham perfect? Was he justified through his obedience or through his works? And so Paul says in verse 2, If this were true, then Abraham would have something to boast about. Now the problem with that... Is that he's just said that one of the reasons that God justifies people on the basis of faith and not their own works is so that no human being would boast. You could look at verse, chapter 3, verse 27. Where is boasting? Paul asks. And then he answers, it is excluded. It's eliminated. No human being can boast about Their own righteousness. Okay, but Paul considers this wrong answer only briefly before putting a quick end to it at verse two, at the end of the verse. At the end of the verse, he abruptly responds, but not before God. See that there? But not before God. Paul can't even let his imagination go there. If Abraham were justified, by his works, he would have reason to boast, but not before God. He won't even consider this for more than two seconds. No one will have something to boast about before God. And men and women, this is the biggest problem with the systems of religion in our world today and throughout history. They all rest fundamentally on achieving justification with God on the basis of works. And that imagines men and women someday standing before God declaring his or her own works to him. This is the problem with your neighbor who thinks that his good deeds or his goodness will allow him to access heaven. While their view of self is off and wrong, their view of God is intolerable to Paul. No one can boast in the presence of almighty, holy God. Instead of reasoning with God about his or her righteousness, they will be speechless like it says in Romans, remember Romans 3.19? Every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be accountable to God. And so maybe they will fall like the great prophet Isaiah. See the problem here? The, the problem is someone reasoning with the creator God about his own righteousness. We can't do that. Remember how the great prophet Isaiah responded in the presence of God? Isaiah chapter 6, I wrote down what he said. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up with the train of his robe that filled the temple. And he said this, ready? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Not a lot of boasting there, is there? Worship. Humble worship. Maybe our unsaved neighbor or friend will be like God's upright servant, Job, who finally got his face-to-face encounter with God. Remember, throughout the book, he's kind of droning on and on about he needs this face-to-face with God, and he gets it in Job forty-two. He said this quote: "I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know." Job said. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is upright Job. No boasting in his own works here either. No one will stand before God and boast in his own righteousness. So verse 2 considers a wrong answer. What if Abraham were justified on the basis of works? He would have reason to boast, Paul says, but not before God. It's not going to happen. That leads to the right answer, verse 3. Paul goes to the Scripture for the right answer, in verse 3. To get the right answer about what Abraham discovered about justification in his own life experience, Paul quotes Scripture, and what a great impulse, right? When Paul needs an answer, he brings Scripture in. And so in verse 3, he quotes a passage. Look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Here in this verse, Paul proves uh, from an Old Testament text that God justified Abraham on the basis of faith instead of his works. And he quotes from an important passage, Genesis 15, verse 6. You could write down the reference and look up the passage this week. Uh, This passage is an important one for New Testament authors. And Paul will keep referring to it in Romans 4 as he talks about the example of Abraham. But as we look at what that verse actually says, uh, the point he makes here is that Abraham found or discovered righteousness when he believed God. Okay, Now, we'll learn more about what Abraham actually believed as we keep going in Romans 4 and uh, future sermons. For our sake today, we'll keep it quite simple. Uh, Abraham's faith consisted in taking God at his word, in believing what God said was true and would come to pass, in trusting that what God had promised would be fulfilled. So uh, the, the point here, though, is that anyone who believes the Bible uh, sees that Paul has proven his point. Abraham's justification came through faith in God, belief in him and his promises. Now, if you look closely, though, at the end of verse 3, you see that Abraham believes God and God counts it to him as righteous. The, the word counted here is important. The word counted is a word that you're going to see starting here in verse 3 throughout the rest of the chapter. I counted 12 times. It's in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, and 24. Now, uh, what Paul says here is, <clears throat> is not that faith is righteousness, but he says faith is counted for righteousness where counted means reckoned or credited. And I would point out here that it's a passive verb, meaning God puts something on Abraham's account on the credit side of the ledger that balances out all of his debts. It's kind of this math term, financial term. God does something for Abraham which credits him for justification. And what he puts on this side is belief in the promises of God. The credit is belief in what God can do. Now, when God looks at our works and compares them to our debts, he will always say in and of ourselves, one word, condemned. If he looks at your works on one side of the ledger, and he looks at your sins, or debts on the other, he will always say condemned. But when God looks at the one who runs to him for help and finds it in Jesus and believes in Jesus, he will say one other word, and that word is justified. Justified. You see, God provides righteousness that is not our own, if we trust in His Son. Now, in studying Romans, uh, you run across historic examples of peoples whose lives were changed by this book, and there is an example of one man who was changed by Romans, who's converted. That I want to just draw your attention to for a moment, because I think it illustrates the point I'm trying to make in this passage. The man's name is John Bunyan. Before his conversion, before God gripped his heart in Romans, Bunyan had struggled with depression, attempting suicide on many occasions over many years of his life. But one day as he was walking, he finally understood God's provision, God's provision of righteousness that was not found in his own works He said, one day I was passing in a field and this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. I thought also I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand and I said, there is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could never say to me, you lack righteousness. Because it was always there right in front of him. I also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame of mind that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Jesus Christ himself the same yesterday, today, and forever." Bunyan said, Now my chains fell off, I was loosed from my afflictions and from my irons, and my temptations fled away, and I went home rejoicing because of the grace and the love of God. What Romans will demonstrate time and time again is that God offers righteousness not on the basis of your works, but through his Son, Jesus Christ. As I look across the auditorium today, I'm sure there are some of you who need to be freed up There's some of you who need the chains taken away. And I ask you, is Jesus your righteousness? Won't you believe in him today so that God can count that belief as your righteousness too? That's the right answer to what Abraham discovered. He found help from God, not from his own works. Now, that leads to two conclusions in verses 4 through 8, the second half of the paragraph, these final conclusions that Paul will draw uh, before we close. The first conclusion is simple. It's found in verse 4, and to state it briefly, it's working brings wages or debt. Look at verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Here, the term wages refers to payments someone receives for labor or work. The word gift is the normal word for grace or favor. To illustrate verse 4, I think it's it's quite simple, but to illustrate it, I I would do it this way. Uh, One of my children has been working for someone doing yard work. Uh, For his work, he receives wages, compensation or paycheck, if Uh, His boss came to him and said on payday, here is a gift. When he handed him the paycheck, uh, I'm sure my son would think he was quite strange. Okay, what do you mean a gift, right? I worked for that. Now, if a boss said that, here's the gift, maybe he would think there's a little bit extra on there or something beyond what he deserved. The point Paul's making here simply is working brings wages but that's not how justification works. Justification from God is a free gift through his son Jesus Christ. You can't work for it. Or it'd be God would be indebted to you. That leads to the the second conclusion which is clearly stated in verse 5 and then proven in verses 6 through 8 that the The second conclusion is this. Believing brings righteousness. Okay, If working brings wages or debt, believing brings righteousness. Look at verse 5. Into the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So instead of working for justification, the one... Who gains righteousness is the one who believes, and I love this description of God, don't you? Believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. I think this description of God is worthy of our reflection and meditation. God is the only one who can un- justify the ungodly in a just way. So I think verse 5 is a succinct description of God, and it deserves more of our attention. As a matter of fact, this week I'm going to try to meditate on verse 5 throughout the week. Now, now in describing God in this way, I think Paul is also lumping Abraham among all the ungodly people. Which, again, I think goes against what a Jewish person might think of Abraham. But the principle he's making here is that believing in God brings righteousness. Now, to prove this in verses 6 through 8... Paul appeals to Scripture again, and specifically now the example of David. So look at verse 6. It says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from David and from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Although much of Romans 4 will be about Abraham, here Paul briefly introduces the example of David because his example coheres with Abraham's. David, of course, is someone we can all identify with. We all have a depraved, sinful nature. We have things that we have done in our past for which we're not proud David knew what it meant to succumb to the pressures of his own sinful desires. And in Psalm 32, David freely uh, comments on the consequences of his own sins with Bathsheba. I think that's the narrative behind Psalm 32. He freely comments on the consequences of his adultery and murder and deceit. He says, if you remember, and we read this for you, verses 3 and 4. David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. You see, David spent months on the throne of Israel. And I liked how one man described this. He said he spent months on the throne of Israel, soaked up to his eyeballs in hypocritical sin. And David describes in Psalm 32 that his sin had robbed him of joy and stripped him of his health and vigor. But in this psalm, men and women, David breaks forth into song to say that he is blessed because God forgave his sin not on account of his own merit, but as a gift. David rejoiced in the fact that it was not his works or actions that was the basis of his justification. Looking more specifically at what Paul quotes in verses 7 and 8, David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. There are several significant things I want to point out about that verse. Lawless deeds could be translated acts of lawlessness. It means to step over known boundaries or to transgress. David considers when he's stepped over the rules or laws that he knew he must obey as a follower of God. Sins is a word that we've covered already in Romans 3. It means to fall short. David knew he fell short of God's glory. To these acts, David considers being forgiven and covered. David considers the man who's pardoned by God having his sins covered. And I love the word covered. The translation of this Hebrew term in the Old Testament is it, it, it used of the covering of the flood waters over the face of the whole earth or a, a head that was covered by a head covering. David says, blessed is the man whose sins are pardoned and whose uh, lawless deeds are covered. He continues in the next verse, verse 8, uh, by using the same, word for, the same word for counted is used by David. that was already used of Abraham. David considers the man for whom God has decided not to credit his sin. Verse 8. Earlier the word is used of God crediting righteousness to a person. David kind of flips it and says... Blessed is the man to whom God will not credit his sin. All this leads David to use one word to describe someone whose sin is covered and forgiven like this. And that one word is blessed. David knew that he was stuck He knew he was found out. He knew he was damned. He knew the law couldn't help him. He knew that there weren't enough sacrifices to offer for his sins. But then he finds himself in right relationship with God, being acquitted by him. And as such, he was blessed. Sometimes people use the word happy here to help emphasize the inner contentment than such a man like David has. David breaks forth in song to praise God and rejoice that his lawless deeds and sins could be forgiven and covered, not counted against him. And so I close by asking this question. Have you ever been so overwhelmed that God doesn't count your actions All your evil thoughts, all your greed, your manipulations, all your cursings and anger, all of your lust, all of your idolatry in pursuing things and money and cars and homes in place of pursuing God. Have you ever been so overwhelmed that God doesn't count those things against you that you broke down or you broke forth in praise to God? You felt freed from your own chains, your bondage, and you exclaimed, blessed, oh, blessed am I, chief of sinners, forgiven by God because of his son's righteousness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that this uh, passage wouldn't just roll off our back like water. Lord, we, we think of Abraham, we think of David, and what they found or discovered about righteousness, and, and perhaps it doesn't really hit us. I'm thankful for Paul who saw these things in the Old Testament Scripture and knew that these things conformed with what God is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we all must understand and know in our heart that justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. And so first, I pray for any person here today who's never believed in the name of Jesus Christ, who stands under your wrath, May they see that you are the one who justifies the ungodly. Might they see that today? And might they rejoice in that? Lord, this is what we needed. We were all part of the ungodly. we were not like you. Sinners. And so for the person, the man or woman, boy or girl, here today who's never believed in the name of Jesus, I pray that they would do this today. At this time, in their heart, pray to the Lord, confessing their sin to you, and then running to you for help in Jesus. Lord, help them not work for it. May they see that produces debt. May they see that would never work and then for my brothers and sisters here, I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed by your goodness to us. As David breaks down and writes this psalm, "Blessed is the man." I pray for us in our private time this week. I pray that we would get up early, perhaps stay up late and would read your word, and would come to know again that you are not holding any of our sins or works against us if we're in Jesus. And I pray that we would break forth into a shout, joyful noise, or a song to you in praise because of what you've done in Jesus. And we would thank you for this, Lord. Pray you'd do this work in our church family so that we would make much out of you this week. For our neighbors who might think that they can boast in works, I pray that you would help us lovingly point out to them that it's only found in Jesus. And we would thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.